This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. I think this is probably primarily a question of what does the Bible teach? And they, like many Baptists today, look at the Scriptures and they see certain patterns uh, where someone exhibits faith, normally an adult, well, always an adult, I think, in the New Testament, and they are then baptized. Uh, so I think this probably for them is an exegetical kind of theological question. Uh, they, they claim that the Bible is the fundamental authority. Now, what we need to appreciate is, is that particularly in this century, the 16th century, is that politics and religion are very closely tied. And that is, that is, that is a, I think, probably the main reason why baptism became such a life-and-death matter. There's more to it than that. I'm going to give you the example, in, in, maybe I don't have time or not, but to look at what happened in the city of Munster. Uh, there were general perceptions of what an Anabaptist was. And you don't hear them talking about theological issues in Europe. Why do they hate Anabaptists? It's not their exegesis. It's their politics. So in the minds of Europeans, in the minds of Catholics and Protestants throughout 16th century Europe, what you find is a rejection of Anabaptism. They're radicals because of the political implications of that view. And I, I said earlier that we talked about baptism as the common element. Well, it's not just baptism, but it's baptism insofar as it demonstrates a separation of church and state. That was not a common idea. That was not an acceptable, orthodox kind of idea, as it is for us today. We're sitting on the other side of all of that. And for us, separation of church and state is a given. But back then, that, that was a very serious matter. It had, had overtones of treason to advocate that the two be separated. And we talk, we talk about a magisterial reformation, a reformation that was brought about by the political leaders. It was in many ways a political decision. Not to, not to demean or to reject the spiritual, theological elements. Those were there as well. But politics plays a very important role here. And this is a, this is a flashpoint, <coughs> the baptism question. Because it it, 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 it it ignites this question about politics and, and the question of treason. That's what's at issue here. You see, I think that when you want to talk about Anabaptism, I think that probably if you want to get to the heart of it, baptism is not the, the, the very center. 
when you when you take off all the, the, the levels, when you get right down to it, it's this it's this separation of church and state, which may be at the very heart of what It's not, it's, again, it's not where they can practice their belief. The question here is, you know, we don't tolerate, even in our world today, a traitor. We put them in prison or we execute them. <laughs> well, uh, <clears throat> one of the things that, that comes out in, in beginning in Zurich is that Anabaptists become associated with instability. That they are associated with people who unravel the basic structures of society. If you separate church and state, you take down, you destroy some of the foundations of civilized society. If the Anabaptists are right in the perception of the Reformers, Anarchy cannot be far behind if you permit Anabaptism. That's the fear. And that fear was realized in the case of Munster. Uh, it is true that most of the Reformers urged strong repression of the Anabaptists. And they were reminded, they, in fact, they did not forget that one of the leaders of the Peasants' Revolt in Germany was an Anabaptist, Thomas Munzer. So there you have early on, 1525 is the birth, within a couple of years, you have people who are self-described Anabaptists or whatever, and they are leading a violent revolt against the powers that be, against the state, against the nobility. So this is sort of stuck in the minds, the collective consciousness of, of Protestant Europe. Now, you've got to also appreciate the fact that a number of very strange Anabaptist, strange behavior did go along with a number of Anabaptists. One quick story here. There was the one Anabaptist fellow who, having read Isaiah 6, the vision of Isaiah where he's taken up to heaven and he feels that he is unworthy to be in the presence of God. And the angels take burning coals and they touch his lips because he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He read that passage and he decides he's going to emulate Isaiah. And so his plan was is to touch the burning coals to his lips and to run through the streets saying, woe is me, woe is me. But his lips swelled up so much <laughs> that he couldn't say anything. <laughs> so you have this kind of bizarre, uh, kind of unbalanced uh, ideas in the minds of some of these folks. You find Anabaptists or radicals doing things like stripping off their clothes and running through the streets, saying the end is near, the end is near. 
there are some other kinds of strange things. Uh, in the minds of Protestants and Catholics, the perception of an Anabaptist is one who has first hell is now holding to a doctrine that is certainly outside the bounds of historic orthodoxy. So it's theologically incorrect. But perhaps even more so, the second perception is, is we have a bunch of unstable people who are hacking at the foundations of an orderly society. They are treasonous and they will unhinge our society if we give them free reign. They are potential anarchists. No civilization can continue if we give free reign to anarchists. Those are the kinds of ideas that are circulating in the minds of Protestant and Catholic Europe when it comes to the Anabaptists. And those kinds of concerns were unfortunately realized in 1532 to 1536 in the city of Munster. The so-called Kingdom of Munster, 1532 to 1536. This is, without doubt, the wildest adventure uh, in the Reformation period. Certainly one of. In 1532... Munster was a city at war between the people and the Catholic bishop. Uh, they were not happy with him. He was not happy with the city of Munster. The whole tension between bishop and city was exacerbated by crop failure, plague, and inflation. I mean, it's a time when everybody's a little bit anxious. It's a time of upheaval in 1532 in the city of Munster. Nobody is entirely happy with anybody else. And into this tense situation comes a Lutheran pastor by the name of Bernard Rothman. Slightly unbalanced chap. He comes in, he capitalizes on this discontent in the city of Munster. And he demands that Munster become a Protestant city. And the people, and this happened again and again in Germany, the people identified Protestantism with freedom, with throwing off the shackles of Rome. When Luther writes a book called The Freedom of the Christian Man, you say that word freedom to peasants and they'll jump at it. And they did. So for many people, Protestantism meant freedom. And so you have a lot of people in Munster, some of whom understand Lutheranism, some of whom do not, say, yeah, let's go with what Rothman wants. He's a Lutheran. That means freedom to me. Let's go for it. Pressure was brought to bear upon the city council. The city council said, okay, guys, we'll give you what you want. We'll become a Lutheran city. When was the president? 1527, I believe. Munster. No, no, it's not. The, word, the words are very. I mean, there's Thomas Munster, and this is the city of Munster. Uh, Munster has an umlaut over there. So Rothman comes in, 
And under His leadership, the city declares itself a Protestant city. Once that happened, refugees began to pour into the city. Again, it's a city that communicates, at least in some sense, this idea of freedom, breaking away from the chains of Rome. But in fifth is in Germany. Uh, if you ask me geographically where in Germany, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. 1534, things take a turn for the worse. Rothman comes under the influence of a radical Dutch Anabaptist by the name of Jan Mathes, M-A-T-T-H-Y-S. Now, he is not, at this point, not in Munster. But Mathes sends his disciple, a man named John of Leiden. John of Leiden is a, is a Dutchman, a disciple of Mathes, and he sends Leiden to Munster to give spiritual guidance and counsel to Rothman. And Leiden's arrival signaled a radical turning point in 1534. John of Leiden, the first thing he does when he gets to town is he runs through the streets screaming, the end is near, the end is near, repent, the end is near. Mass hysteria broke out. In the midst of all this hysteria, the city council is overthrown by Rothman and John of Leiden and their followers. And so now this city is not only a Protestant city, but it's really more than that now. It's, it's, a, it's a radical city. It's a city of, of Anabaptists. And they seize complete political control of the city of Munster in 1534. Rothman, and now with the guidance of John of Leiden, says that we need to use the sword against all the ungodly because the end is coming soon and we need to be prepared there's this apocalyptic sense and a willingness in the last times to take up the sword against the ungodly. So there is this, this talk now about violence and a willingness to engage in violence. Well, some of the more moderate types are now getting a little nervous and they're starting to very slowly make their way for the city gate and get out of town as fast as they can because things are becoming more and more extreme. But for every moderate that left town, a hundred disaffected refugees come into Munster. Pretty soon, under the leadership of Leiden, Munster is declared to be the new Jerusalem. They believed that the world was coming to an end, God was going to come back, Christ was going to come back, wielding a sword, is going to destroy all the ungodly, and the only place of refuge is the new Jerusalem. That's where He will come and reign and wield His sword and destroy the ungodly. They are the chosen ones. It's not like the Woodstock God, man. <laughs> well, it, it's not, it, we haven't seen the worst of it yet.
Well, not much later, Matthes himself now comes, seeing that the city has completely gone radical, he sees this as his opportunity to come in and take control. First thing he does, he comes into town, takes over complete leadership, and says, all Lutherans and Catholics should be immediately executed. More reasonable heads prevailed, and they merely banished them, sending them out into a freezing blizzard. Uh, as far, I, no, I think Rothman, I believe, had gone over completely. He had followed Matthes. Well, now that the city had been taken over by these radicals, the Roman Catholic bishop raises an army and sur- begins to surround the city. Uh, and in response to this military threat, I mean, these are the ungodly, remember, from Matthes' perspective, he assumes complete dictatorial powers and began what can only be described as a reign of terror. All books were burned. All houses were left open. No locks were to be used. Munster was declared to be a communist state. All property belonged to Jan Mathes. All personal property belonged to him. There's one story where a local blacksmith refused to give up his property and began to argue and protest, at which point Jan Mathes came and stabbed him to death in front of everyone. A reign of terror. In May 1534, Mathes has a vision. He thinks he's Gideon. And decides to gather just a, a handful of devout followers and then to go out and then to attack this massive Roman Catholic army encamped outside the city walls of Munster. He goes out in the dead of night, attacks, and is slaughtered with his handful of men by the Roman Catholics. And then things got worse in the city of Munster because now that left John of Leiden in control. First thing he does, strips off all of his clothes, runs naked through the streets declaring, the end is near, the end is near, repent, the end is near. He fell into a trance. He didn't speak for three days. He recovered consciousness and declared that he was the new Messiah. He was the Messiah that they had been waiting for, and now the Messiah in the form of John of Leiden had now come to rule in the New Jerusalem. One of the first rules he established was polygamy. He took the widow of Jan Mathes as his wife along with 15 other women. Everything was held in common, sort of. So Jan of Leiden declares himself to be the Messiah. At this point, more troops arrive, this time from Philip of Hesse, Lutheran troops. So Lutheran troops, in conjunction with Catholic troops, put a blockade around the city of Munster. No one can get in or out because of this economic and military blockade. After a few months, famine begins to rage in the city 
reports of cannibalism were, were, uh, were there, that people were eating one another. They were so hungry. The siege, after about six months, a few very hungry Anabaptists make their way out and they uh, surrender themselves to the armies outside. And they then, in exchange for food, point out the vulnerable spots in the defenses of the city of Munster. And on June 24, 1535, the combined army of Catholics and Protestants stormed the city, knowing all of its weak points, and very quickly defeated everyone, and they captured King John of Leiden. And they carried him around, they put him in a cage, and they took him around to various locations throughout Europe to show people what an Anabaptist looked like. And all of this time, he didn't say anything. Finally, after having paraded him around as the, the Anabaptist example par excellence, they decided to kill him. I mean, after all, he was a heretic, they said. And so they decided to torture him to death. It wasn't good enough simply to kill him, but they decided to torture him. That is, they would take red hot, red hot pliers and pull out pieces of flesh until he died. Here's the interesting part. He went into a trance. And while they were plying his flesh with red hot pliers, he never uttered a sound. Or moved. He finally died, and his body again was hung up in a cage from the church tower. Again, to remind people of what an Anabaptist looked like. You see the association in the minds of people between Anabaptism and anarchy? That is the picture that went out in 1535, 1536 throughout Europe. What was uh, Mathis expecting of John Lydon? What, what was his plan? Well, just, just to, to counsel and to guide and to implement Mathe's own apocalyptic theology in Munster. Uh, I mean, he certainly is this, is. this is a grab for power. They see that the city is already uh, take, is, is controlled by Rothman, who is a devotee of, of Mathe's. So Mathe sends his, his guy down there to sort of prepare the way, if you will, for the arrival of the, of the big kahuna. June 24, 1535 is when the combined armies of Catholics and Protestants invaded the city. Well, we've got a few minutes, and I want to finish up here with, with uh, another vision of Anabaptism. Uh, we are clear, aren't we now, why Catholics and Protestants felt like Anabaptists were dangerous and should be hunted down like mad dogs. When you have an example like this, it really affected the perception. Did the Catholic use this as an opportunity to point to the Protestants and say, we focus on? Uh, Officially or unofficially? 
Well, obviously they recognized there was a difference between a Protestant and an Anabaptist. The word getting out and leading, yes, that, 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 that was said many times. Uh, they didn't need Munster to say that, but that certainly gave, added fuel to the flame. Well, I've given you a, a very uh, dark vision of what Anabaptism could be. Well, this is a group. Oh no, no, no organization whatsoever. Well, yeah. Well, at Munster, you find you primarily find a, a group who, because of their visions, they think God is directly revealing Himself to these these specific individuals. These guys are prophets, and one thinks he's the Messiah. It's a spiritualist. Yeah. No, no, not well defined at all. Well, this the Schleitheim Confession of 1527 represents a more mainstream view of Anabaptists, a more accurate view of what the Anabaptists were like. The main author was a man named Michael Sattler. And in 1527, he presided, of a, presided over a conference of Anabaptists who met in the city of Schleitheim. And they composed a confession of faith, and it's generally regarded to be one of the best documents that represents mainstream uh, Anabaptists. These are the people who fit into that first category that I mentioned, the first grouping of Anabaptists proper who look at the Bible as their authority. There were seven articles. Let me summarize those for you pretty quickly. Of course, they affirmed believers' baptism. And again, it's, it's very interesting that they say that infant baptism is the highest and chief abomination of the Pope. So for them, this is a very serious issue. Uh, a second article, it concerns church discipline. They believed in a pure church. So the first article is, we believe in believers' baptism. The second article is, we believe in a pure church. That is to say that... Everyone in our church, these are true Christians, and they manifest their Christianity. There's no uh, tares among the wheat. And they, they made it their job to try to purge all of those who are not, in their judgment, to be true Christians. Now, what's interesting about this is the church must be absolutely pure. They didn't want any sinners in it. And there is a, a subtle anti-state. Uh, there's, there's an implicit separation between church and state in this kind of view. We are pure, and we, we are not like the state. The state is not pure, but we are. There's this implicit kind of separation, distinction between the church and the state in that second statement. The third is that they affirm... Uh, the Lord's Supper as a memorial. They take a Zwinglian view. And they say only those who've been baptized may partake of it. Again, only those separated from church, from the state, that is, those who are baptized, may partake. Again, they are very explicit in the fourth article. 
because they say that they should be separate from all forms of wickedness, including all civic affairs. You ask for an explicit. You ask the question someone did earlier: Did they ever explicitly say that they affirm separation of church and state? Article Four, Schleitheim Confession, fifteen twenty-seven. A real Christian, a pure Christian, is one who will avoid not only contact with Catholics, drinking houses, but all civic affairs. The fifth article says the pastors must have a good reputation. No big deal there. Sixth article says that no true Christian can ever be a soldier in any cause. They are not in any case to bear arms, no matter how just the cause. Again, a very explicit separation of church and state. Seven, the seventh article. No oaths are to be taken. No oaths, O-A-T-H-S. That is to say, there's no pledges of allegiance. That is a very politically loaded article. If you cannot pledge your allegiance, then from the Protestant perspective, this was incipient uh, treason to make no oaths or take no oaths of loyalty. Nearly every one of the seven articles of the Schleitheim Confession either directly or indirectly have a bearing on the Christian's relationship to the state. And that's why I say that when you look at what, what is the core of 16th century Anabaptism, it gets at this question of separation of church and state. And in almost all seven articles, it's either stated directly or indirectly that a Christian cannot be involved in the state in any sense. And of course, the perception of this document was not received very warmly by Protestants or Catholics. They viewed this as a document of traitors. <coughs> Worthy of capital punishment. Final comment. It will not surprise anyone to learn that Michael Sattler was arrested and suffered a terrible fate for having composed the Schleitheim Confession. Listen to the sentence read against him at his trial. In the case of the attorney of His Imperial Majesty versus Michael Sattler, judgment is passed that Michael Sattler shall be delivered to the executioner who shall lead him to the place of execution and cut out his tongue. Then, forge him fast to a wagon and thereupon with red-hot tongs twice tear pieces of his flesh from his body. Still alive. And after he been brought outside the gate, he shall be plied five more times in the same manner. Still alive. And after this, he shall be burned to ashes as a heretic. His wife, many threats and entreaties came to her saying, Repent, renounce your views. She remained steadfast. Her punishment was death by drowning in May 1527. Sattler's execution. Here's a relatively moderate fellow. Here's a pacifist, if you will, 
A guy who says, I'm not going to shoot anybody. I'm not going to kill anybody because I am a Christian and I will not be involved in war of any kind. Here's a basically a decent guy. But because of the general association between Anabaptism and anarchy, he was cruelly put to death. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.